welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. We're happy to have you this evening. We are looking forward to uh, having our guest tonight, Mr. Glenn Schwartz or Glenn Hurricane Schwartz. He's a meteorologist at NBC10 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and good friend of Peter's there. And I think if you can look at Peter's screen, he's got a little little picture behind him. So uh, I, I think Peter and, and Glenn have become good friends. So hopefully we can explore that relationship and so mm-hmm. much more. And if you uh, lived in Carolinas for a long time. You may remember Glenn from his stint at WRAO. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. So, uh, Glenn, welcome to the show. We're uh, happy to have you. Uh, meteorologist, Arthur, uh, author, uh, you, you've done a lot. So, uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover tonight. And I guess our first question, uh, since you're a first-time guest, is how did you get uh, hooked into the weather world? Uh, we always find these uh, stories interesting. So, what, what made you catch the weather bug? Well, just like most meteorologist I got started as a kid and I I actually use it as part of the plot for my book my latest uh, my novel called the weather maker and even though the weather maker is not me I take this story and give it to him I used to love to play baseball as a kid and we got into a a rut with the weather where we got like several rainouts in a row. It was very frustrating. And so I decided that when I grew up, I was going to build a machine where I could control the weather. I could turn the rain right off so I could play baseball. And uh, of course, it didn't take long to figure out that I couldn't do that. So the next best thing is to try to predict it. And so I decided I was going to be a meteorologist when I was in the fifth grade. You did have a stint in Raleigh. Um, Maybe you can tell us a bit about that. Maybe some of the other um, TV uh, uh, stations that you worked for. All right. Well, let let me start at the beginning because uh, I I went to Penn State and got a degree there and then ended up at AccuWeather, my first job for a year and a half. Went from there to the National Hurricane Center as an intern and uh, work with some of the top people in the world. It was the greatest job. And then from there, I went to Atlanta, National Weather Service. It was the disaster preparedness meteorologist there. And it was in Atlanta I got discovered uh, for TV. There was one station in Atlanta that did not have a meteorologist. So every time there was a big story, they would send a crew down to the weather service. And I was sort of the, the spokesman because I was a severe weather guy. And so they put me on the news live at 11 o'clock one night when Hurricane Frederick was coming in, 1979. And it was coming up toward Atlanta. And it was a big story. It's top of the news. They put me on the air that night. And the next day, the news director called up and asked if I was interested in television. So I started there, went to Cincinnati, got fired there, went back to the Weather Channel in Atlanta, where I ended up chasing hurricanes, among other things. Then got a job in New York City, was there for four years. That's where I got the nickname. I also got fired there. Then went down to Raleigh, which I thought was a nice, safe place to go, and lasted two years and got fired there. And uh, went from Raleigh to Fort Myers to West Palm Beach and finally to Philly in 95. 
I have a follow-up about being fired, Glenn. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know if this applies so much to uh, to the weather track, but I remember in journalism school, they told us, if you stick this out long enough to have a successful career, you will be sued and you will be fired. <laughs> Does, is that applicable to you? I don't think I've been sued. Yet. Well, that's good. That one's probably not necessary. I have, I have threatened to sue, um, but th- that has not been the, the case. The... The uh, employment uh, interruptions uh, have definitely been a part of my career. And in, in most cases, you can't even necessarily take it personally because what happens is like I lost my job in Cincinnati because the anchorman wanted his buddy to do the weather. His buddy was a comedian. Like, mm-hmm. They just wanted something different. And I wasn't that. So you're out. And in New York, there's new management came in. They didn't like the way I did it or wanted somebody else. And so I'm out. And in Raleigh, it was the, probably the worst of all because I, I thought that was a safe job, WREL. As those of you in the Carolinas know, is one of the top stations in the country and one of the most stable, respected stations in the country. And after two years, um, I get my review. I worked with Greg Fischel. He was the chief met then. So he writes me this great review and then sends me to the news director. News director says, Oh, yeah, this is very nice, but it doesn't matter. We're not going to renew your contract. Well, why aren't you going to renew my contract? Well, I can't tell you. You'll have to go upstairs and talk to the general manager. Go upstairs. It's a huge office. It's just him and me. I said, like, what's going on? Why? He says, because you're not pretty. Imagine him saying that to a woman, first of all. I mean, and even in today's world, you, you couldn't really say that, but there's no other witness. He was just being honest with me. You know, if you if you know Greg Fischel, you know, he was kind of a dorky looking guy, too. And, it, it, hey, you know, we can have one dork and that's it. You know, that's our quota. So um, that's why I was out of a job there. Now I know why I'm not hearing back from any of the TV jobs I'm applying for. <laughs> <laughs> well, Glenn, Hurricane Atlanta was certainly a, a beginning for you, but later on you went on to cover Hurricane Andrew. And I know we discussed this briefly before the show, but mm-hmm. uh, we would love to hear your story on just how right. crazy it was to get thrown right into that situation. Yeah, well, that was when I was in uh, Raleigh. I had uh, gotten removed from my job uh, a few months earlier, uh, having a hard time getting employed again. I was even considering going back to the weather service. And then one day I get a call from my best friend who was the top meteorologist in Fort Myers, Florida, and says, hey, you want to work a hurricane? Because Hurricane Andrew is coming and it's going to be a big deal, big story, and we need some help. So they flew me uh, down to Fort Myers. I get off the plane. His wife picks me up, takes me to the studio, and I'm on the air for 30 straight hours. 
And then after that, they offered me a, a full-time job. So what's the hardest part of being on air for 30 hours? I don't think any of our viewers or even myself know what that's like. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I wasn't in front of the camera for 30 hours. There were times where, you know, we're off to the side. We were also doing radio at the same time. They have the top radio station in town. And there's no place to rest. So I would literally lay down on the floor uh, to rest every once in a while. But the, the adrenaline that goes on with a, a hurricane is so powerful. And we've spent our whole lives dedicated to this. And this is our Super Bowl. We're not going to get tired. We're not going to let our voice cracking stop us. The boss wants to give you a break. And, you know, this happened to me once years later in Philadelphia where the news director came and he wanted to take me off, off the air. He says, you need some rest. I said, I'll rest when I'm dead. I mean, come on. This is, this is a Super Bowl time. You don't go to the bench when there's Super Bowls on. So, Glenn, uh, you've been working in Philly for the last 25 years, uh, you mentioned. Uh, so tell us what it was like uh, getting to work back in your area again. And uh, I believe you were one of the first to do a winter forecast around here. I, I, uh, I was the first to do it and have lived to regret it many times. Um, so I came back here in 95. And two months after I started is the blizzard in 96. So I became known really fast, um, managed to do well during the storm when the weather service and the other stations were backing off uh, on the Friday before the storm because uh, GFS was uh, squeezing uh, the storm down and putting the cold air in and changing the track. And uh, so everybody backed off with the snowstorm forecasts. And I've always believed that the most important thing in forecasting is the pattern. Forecast the pattern, look at the pattern, and then you can decide whether you want to change your forecast based on new computer guidance. And there was nothing different with the pattern. The GFS just had a run that was typical of the way the GFS was, you know, it's that bad now. Imagine how it was 25 years ago. Okay. And so I stayed with the forecast. I said, I still think it's going to be a big storm. We got 30 inches of snow that we still haven't beaten and it can make my reputation. Now the guy who hired me in, in Philly was my assistant news director in Raleigh. So he already knew me. He knew what I was about. He knew I was from Philly. And he knew about the nickname. So he said, there's two, there's two things. I want to offer you the job, but there's two conditions. Number one, we're going to call you Hurricane. So, well, that's fine. And he says, I want you to wear bow ties, which I had never done before. Like, why? So because our, our main meteorologist is a guy named John Belaris. And the 
women are crazy about him. And he's so handsome. And he dresses so beautifully. He could be on the cover of GQ magazine. I picture he was the anti-Bolaris. <laughs> so instead of being insulted by that, I saw the opportunity to be connected with the most popular weather person in town. And then we kind of created this partnership that helped get me known even better um, to a wider audience. And um, it was as close to instant success as, as you can imagine. What do you think are the most important differences between uh, each of those stops in your career, especially the, the television locations, the, the television jobs? Obviously, the weather is different. Um, in Atlanta, you predict one inch of snow and the whole town freaks out. So you got to be really careful with what you're predicting. That's one of the reasons, actually, that I wanted to get into television, because this guy that was on that station I was talking about that didn't have a real meteorologist, there was one day... It, I, I was at the weather service. I made the forecast. He would take my forecast and then butcher it on the air. And I'd be watching the news and yelling at the screen and throwing things at the, at the TV. And one day I had predicted a 30% chance of some flurries, let's say. And he gets on TV and he says, it's going to snow. And so the whole town goes crazy. I'm throwing stuff at the TV. Like, that's not my forecast. I did not say that. Now I get to be the direct messenger. I don't have to go through the stupid middleman. And I can talk to the viewers directly. So that's the best thing about television. No middleman. People in general prefer honesty. If you don't know, you tell them you don't know. If you're sure... You jump on it. And that's been my forecast philosophy uh, all this time. If you get too carried away and look, you know, we love storms. It's our nature to get carried away. But we can't show that on TV. They would not like to see you jump up and down and saying, oh, boy, this incredible tornado is coming. You should see the pictures because we don't become meteorologists be for sunny days. We become meteorologists because of the storms and the severe weather. That's one of the important things is to control yourself, control your emotions. With the winter forecast, it started in 97 when I saw this huge El Nino developing. And I had read enough to know the theory about how that would affect the winter. And I went on TV and I talked about it. And I predicted a winter with uh, hardly any snow and exceptionally warm. And that's what happened. And from then on, people wanted a winter forecast every year, no matter how hard it would be, or how conflicting the signals would be, you got to do it. And then once I did it, and the ratings would go up, because we would do it in November during the ratings month, we get this big spike in the ratings. So then the competition has to do it. And then they make a big deal out of it. And so it's like everybody's doing their own winter forecast and it became this monster um, that got out of control, really. 
um, over the years, but I still had to keep doing it every year. Glenn, those winter forecasts are widely shared on social media by a number of meteorologists nowadays. What is your opinion on social media and its role in communicating the weather? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> you know, obviously, if if social media was around when I was younger, you know, when I was a, a teenager, I'd be as guilty as a lot of the current teenagers are uh, who love weather. And like I said, you're excited about it. Now you're going to put up a 384-hour GFS showing this monster storm off the coast. I, I can't blame anybody for doing that because I probably would have done the same thing if I was 15 and, and excited about storms like that. Um, but it, it does require a whole lot of calming the audience down and trying to, um, you have to kind of acknowledge it in some way, you know, hey, you've been hearing a lot about the possibilities of this storm. Well, let me tell you, you know, here's how we look at it. People get very angry, obviously. So what's happened is in the 47 years, I believe I've been forecasting, the skill has improved dramatically. When I started TV, we could only do a three-day forecast. Now I do a 10-day and I verify them. So I have skill. We have skill out to 10 days. Or else I wouldn't be doing it. But at the same time, we've gotten so good that people depend on us. They make changes in their plans because of us and our forecasts. So when we're wrong, they're that much angrier. Back when I started, if I would say there's going to be uh, snow uh, five days from now, they go, yeah, sure. And then not expect it to happen. And then when it didn't happen, nobody's mad. Now, if you say that, they're expecting that snow. How much? It's five days ahead of time. I want to know how much. If you're not going to tell me, I'll get it from somebody else who will. It doesn't matter. I want information. And so you're always having a, a conflict over how much, how far you want to go or you can go based on the science while the pressure is coming from the public, the pressure is coming from your management, the pressure is coming from the promotional people. And so that's where you know, it gets a little tricky and uh, it's not pure science anymore. You teased us a little bit earlier about writing a book uh, called The Weather Maker. So um, can you tell us a little bit about that and what, you know, okay. you kind of told us the inspiration, but kind of what, uh, what it all went into it. All right. This is it. And I hope all of you will order one. You can get them on Amazon or uh, through the publisher, uh, Sunbury Press. So... <clears throat> I wrote a book or co-authored a book in 2003 called the Philadelphia Area Weather Book, you know, nonfiction uh, with Dr. John Neese from Penn State. And it was very well received. We got an award for the best weather book in the country that year for the AMS. But 
and they don't sell a whole lot of books, made about a dollar fifty out of it. And you don't reach a wide audience. And I went several years and then I was talking to a friend of mine one, one day at lunch about the book and how you know, it didn't really sell very well. He said, well, why don't you write fiction? And that night, I got the idea for this book. Now, there may be like a, a time warp here. I'm talking about my new book, just got published this January. I had the idea for this book 14 years ago. I wrote the first draft of this 14 years ago. But I couldn't find a publisher, couldn't find an agent to find the publisher because this was a story that had in its background, it's talking about climate and talking about the connection between climate and severe weather and extreme weather and about weather modification and trying to fix the climate, what consequences could happen. So I just figure I was, you know, maybe ahead of my time, but eventually, Climate became a pretty big subject. And I did finally uh, run into a publisher because this, uh, there's a new genre. It's called cli-fi, climate fiction. And the last, let's say, big movie that you can describe as climate fiction is A Day After Tomorrow. Okay? That was 15 years ago. What happens with that is you're reaching the masses. You're reaching the mass audience. Books on climate, nonfiction, by great writers, great scientists, top scientists in the world. Who is buying and reading those books? People who are already on board. What my mission has been for the last 20 years related to climate is to try to spread the word to the more general public. That's the great thing about TV is that you reach a wide audience. Even people who aren't specifically interested in weather, a little getting more and more curious about this. And so what I end up doing is give them a piece of entertainment that has a good science in it. So my slogan is, the plot is fiction, the science is real. So I go back to my childhood there. There's this TV weatherman who discovers that he can control the weather. He can make it rain, he can make it stop raining, make it snow, can uh, make storms weaker. And then what happens? Let's use that premise and let's say, what happens if? So, if a TV guy did that, how would management react? How would the promotion people react? How would the competition react? How would the insurance industry react? The, the mafia, the military, I mean, 
Just imagine the kind of power that this person would have. And so through that vehicle, I get to talk about climate and extreme weather connection and about weather modification and the idea of you keep waiting too long, you're going to get desperate and these people are going to try to do crazy things to fix the climate. And it's uh, sort of a uh, cautionary tale about trying to do that. Well, I better go buy this book then. <laughs> we talked about some of the storms you covered, some of the storms you storm chased. Uh, what's the most memorable storm that you either covered or storm chased? Well, you know, the chase, nothing can top Elena because it it really made my reputation. It it really started the storm chasing at the Weather Channel. You know, it's the perfect example of the drama of a hurricane. You see, back in those days, we didn't have the satellite truck or anything modern. So we had to shoot videotape in Tampa. The Tampa airport was closed because of flooding. So we had to drive to Orlando to take the tape and drop it off on the plane, then drive back to Tampa and shoot some more, drive back to Orlando, back and forth, back and forth. So there's lots of reasons that that is the most memorable. As far as forecasting the storm, the most memorable uh, two of them were the blizzard in 96 and then Sandy, because Sandy became a big deal, too, because you have one model going that way and the other model going the other way. And I've been a follower of the European model since the 90s <laughs> when we first got to see any of it. And so I was predicting it was going to make that left turn while the other guys were saying it was going to make a right turn. That became a big deal, too. You remember that, Peter? Were you? I remember that. Stressful time. <laughs> yeah. I, I did get two days off from school for that. So that was good. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know if you would remember that at the same time I was predicting it, talking about the left turn, which virtually never happens. Yeah. Uh, our competitors were not only predicting the opposite on TV, but were criticizing me on social media mm. for hyping the storm. And so uh, it's another reason <laughs> to remember that. You were talking about the competing stations kind of calling you, calling you. How did, how did you process that? I mean, I know in the weather industry, we our main goal is to make sure that those who are watching and listening are safe. That, that you know, that's what we want. But when you have other people starting attacking you because of, of what you're seeing on a forecast, how, how did you handle that? I, I'm interested to hear. Well, I had... For example, I, I had already done a weather cast one night at, at I think six o'clock. And I walk into the newsroom and I just happened to walk into the newsroom at the time that our competitor was on. And saying on TV, no hype, just write. And I was just flabbergasted that somebody, not that there would be criticism, 
but that somebody could be so sure that the European model was going to be wrong. Because once again, the pattern, the weather pattern approved of that solution. The blocking pattern up in the North Atlantic. So, like, for example, I say, look, it could snow in June if the conditions are right. And if the conditions are right, a Category 3 hurricane can make a sharp left turn into New Jersey. The conditions were right. And so that's, and so that's why I tended to believe the European model there. But um, you definitely can't get into a back and forth on social media. That just takes you down into a bad place. Um, you just remember it and let other people criticize the other guys for being wrong. Welcome to Philly. Uh <laughs> Well, Glenn, we've certainly enjoyed your time this evening. Um, would love for you to once again uh, tell us where we can uh, buy your book and uh, any social media accounts that you would like mm -hmm. to promote. We'd love to do that as well. Yeah, well, my my Twitter handle is at HurricaneNBC10. And I've been working from home since March, so I haven't been as involved in uh, any of that or blog writing as uh, – I have been before. I've been trying to sell this and it was doing just fine. I had some nice book signings uh, going on until the virus hit. So uh, you can get this on Amazon. Uh, it's not expensive. It's an easy read. Um, it, even people who aren't weather fanatics find it interesting. I try to make it uh, interesting stories, inside stories about TV, because this is a TV guy who's the main character. Um, trying to make it as entertaining as possible. And I hope one day to have it made into a big Hollywood movie so that more people can read or find out about the climate and extreme weather connection, because that is the future. We've seen some of the horrendous results of this this year. And this is not the end of it. You can't even say that this is the new normal because 20 years from now, you may look back at this year and say, oh, remember when they were only category fives? Yeah, we do category sixes now. And there should be a category six, by the way. Um, but we got to do something to slow this, slow this down of what's happening. It may be real fascinating to us meteorologists, but it's killing people and it's going to kill more people and it's going to bankrupt countries and start wars perhaps. So, um, you know, I'm getting up close to retirement so I'm not going to be as directly affected by this, but all of you are. And as meteorologists, it's your, it's your job now to spread the word. You can't retire. Come on. Well, I'm not uh, uh, planning to, <laughs> but 
uh, my contract's up in the spring and it's oh no yeah well, Glenn, thank you so much, and uh, we hope you have a great uh, great rest of your week. And for you guys who are watching us here on the Carolina Weather Group, thank you for watching. We'll see you next time here for another new episode of the Carolina Weather Group.